But we're going to jump in. You know the routine. You know how we're going to... So uh, we're going to desperately try to get through three chapters tonight um, because chapters 9, 10, and 11 form a unified whole. Um, and I should probably... I probably should have said this at the beginning. Uh, if you've been with me in Bible study in the past years, we've talked about this. The little numbers, the chapters and verses, that's like in the last 150 years. Paul did not go, hmm, number seven, chapter seven, verse one. These are just long scrolls. Who did it? Um, scholars in the last 150 years, you know, as books began to be printed, it just made a lot more sense to add, to break it down. And so um, he didn't think, okay, now I'm gonna start a new section. In his mind he is, but it's just one long scroll. And just as a side note, now you understand why Old Testament biblical scholars pretty much go insane by about the age of 35. Um, Hebrew doesn't even break up the words. And Hebrew doesn't have any vowels, it's just consonants. So um, what would be a good example? Uh, MP, is that mop? Is it map? Is it mope? And what scholars have to do is you know, kind of figure out context. the context. And so that's why, this is why biblical translation, it, it's half science, half art. But the, so the point to that being, when Paul wrote this, he didn't go, okay, <clears throat> I'm done with that. Now chapter nine, verse one. Now he's, he's just launching into a whole new argument. And chapters nine th through 11, uh, the next the three chapters we wanna do tonight. On the one hand, uh, at a cursory glance, you may say, well, what does this have to do with us? Because this really, we're going to return to the Jewish question. Not so much the Jewish question, as I would say the Jewish problem. Um, the Jewish problem, you know, the Jewish question has always been, how do, you, how do you become righteous? Is it through the law or through Jesus? I would hope after five weeks of, of uh, I think is this five or six weeks we've got, whatever it is, uh, you, you've got to the point where you know, we're saved by Jesus. Got it. Good. Great. Next. There still is the Jewish problem. What are we going to do with the Jewish people? What is God going to do with them? And and Paul starts us off in verse one by by he's not being um, poetic here. His he's he's heartbroken. He loves his people. He loves his Jew. He he's Jewish. Jesus was Jewish. These are his people, and the he's just in agony when he sees that severing of, of the, the covenant between the chosen people of God and the Lord God Almighty. And so this is why he keeps coming back to this theme. You know, Paul is kind of wrestling intellectually through this himself. We've dealt with the whole righteousness question. We've been doing that for the last four or five weeks. But now we got to get back to the question of what value then, of what value is it to be Jewish? We've touched on that a little bit. But the real question is then what's going to happen to the Jewish people? Has God abandoned them? And so that's what Paul's going to be dealing with tonight. Um, I'm going to give you the, the answer to the question already. One of the things he will be bringing up, I'm answering my initial question. So we can read this as people who are Greek, American, Arabic, Syrian, Lebanese, and go, hey, what does this have to do with us? Everything. Because in essence, Paul is saying to the Jewish community, while he's trying to stick up for them, he's also saying, Look at all the things God gave you, and you just missed it. Those of us, especially those of us who, who are adherents of apostolic Christianity, um, and I'm not excluding the Protestant church, but especially if you're Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox, what excuse are we going to make for the spiritual deadness in our churches? I can say that. You can't. I can't. You, I mean, you, don't, you, know, you can't fire me. The bishop can. I don't work for you guys. So, that, the, 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 I mean, you know, we're, 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 we may not be dead, but we're on life support waiting for somebody to mercifully pull the plug. Yeah. Oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> ah, but we are the Church of the Fathers. Ah. And great. St. Paul, as we're going to see tonight, would essentially say to that, and I know you're being, you're setting me up, thank you. No, he's setting me up for this. Paul would essentially say, good, the fathers will be saved. How about you? Right? It's what happens when you, when you supplant the heart for the letter. It's what happens when you distance yourself from the power of the Holy Spirit in Jesus Christ. It's what happens when the church becomes an institution. Pure and simple. Um... I think this is what Paul would say to us tonight. So I think Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11, while it doesn't have the emotional punch that we had last week, I mean, you, you, I think you, if you were here, you know I love Romans 
five, six, seven, and eight, especially seven and eight. I think chapters nine, ten, and eleven, especially on the cusp of Great Lent, is a golden opportunity for us to look deep within our hearts, not only as individuals, but collectively as a church. What answer will we make? And what changes do we need to make? Having the warning of the Jewish people sitting here right in front of us in Romans 9, 10, 11. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah the fathers will be saved. What about you? Uh, I've always been kind of a smart aleck my entire life. Um, I, I know, I know. Shocking. Nobody asked you, Joyce. Um, I, ha I had a neighbor at one point who, who was Jewish. And, you know, she, we'd go out every now and just you know, have dinner together and um, her mother passed, and I, I did what Greeks do. I ran to the Publix and bought two chickens and, you know, brought over. And she said, oh, no, 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 you can't, you can't put those in that dish. I, I keep kosher. And I said, Sherry, we were just out on Tuesday, and you had a cheeseburger. <laughs> and last week we went out, you had shrimp. And she goes, well, no, no, I keep kosher in the house. <laughs> and I said, oh, congratulations, your dishes will go to heaven. <laughs> It's we. <laughs> yeah, I was kind of smart. Like, good for your dishes. Your dishes will be saved. Um, we do the same. We do the same thing. We're relying on tradition, and so let, let's just jump in and see what Paul has to say. So let's start with Romans chapter nine. Um, Debbie, you always make the mistake of sitting to my immediate left. Uh, those of you listening at home, uh, Romans chapter nine, verse one. I tell the truth in Christ, I am not lying. My conscience also bear, bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. I want you to listen, and, and please believe Paul is not writing poetic hyperbole. This is a man in agony. Keep going. That I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises, of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, the eternally blessed God. Amen. What has Paul basically said there? And again, uh, if you're here for the first time, don't tell me what you think because no one cares. Tell me what the text says. We're here to see what does Paul say. In particular, I'm looking at verse 3. What is Paul saying in verse 3? suffer for them. I would rather be cut off from that. Think about Paul and everything that we know about Paul up to this point. And this, this monument to faith in Jesus Christ is saying, I would willingly cut myself off from Christ if it would bring my people. This is not poetic license. He is in agony when he looks at the Jewish community that has rejected Christ. And it's, it's tearing him apart inside. And Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11 is this, this incredible mind trying to make sense of this. You know, why, why, did, why did God choose them in the first place? And why did he do this knowing that they were going to reject him? And so he's, we're going to get to these answers. If I shut up, we'll, we'll you know, get to Paul's answers. But you can hear his agony. I, I, would, I wish I was cut off if they would be saved. Um, you know, Pandali, you, you brought up the tradition. Look at verse 4. They are Israelites, and to them belongs the sonship, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promise. He, he's enumerating all these blessings that the Israelites had. And in case we of the Gentile persuasion have forgotten, that includes what? Jesus, who was also Jewish. God who is over all be blessed forever. Okay, Debbie, keep going, verse 6. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as seed. Let's stop for a minute because it can be tough to get through this. He, he has to immediately get this out on the table because if, if Israel has now fallen away, we're not going to say they've been rejected, but if they've fallen away and the Gentiles are coming in, does that mean God's promises have failed? Does that mean God's promises didn't work? Well, Paul's going to give us the answer. And, he, and we've heard this before. Remember back, uh, I think it was chapter 2, 
He is a Jew who is one inwardly. Just because you circumcise the foreskin of your flesh doesn't mean you're, are you keeping the law spiritually? Remember we talked about that four or five weeks ago. Here it comes again. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his descendants. But it's through Isaac shall your descendants be. That's, that's the Old Testament promise to Genesis, through, in Genesis to Abraham through Isaac. Was Isaac Abraham's only kid? Well, he, had, he had another kid. Ishmael. How do you think he felt at that point? Tough to be that brother, huh? Yeah. Hmm, all of these wonderful promises to God are made through him. What about me? So just because you're a child of Abraham doesn't mean you're a child of Abraham. Just because you are part of Israel doesn't mean you're part of Israel. Because, and I hope you're picking up the irony with which I'm speaking. When Paul talks about Israel, it's spiritual Israel. He is a Jew who is one inwardly. You know, connect all the dots that we've been looking at for these last few weeks. So for Paul to say, I'm an Israelite, it means you're a true Israelite, which means you're following Jesus. Not everyone who calls himself an Israelite is an Israelite in Paul's eyes. As a side note, St. Gregory of Nyssa, who's my particular favorite church father, uh, the brother of St. Basil, actually couldn't stand his brother. He thought Basil was arrogant and stuck up, which I just find <laughs> hilarious. Uh, he had one of my favorite quotes of St. Gregory's. He talks about Christians. He said, being something does not result from being called something. Is that a great line or what? <laughs> being something does not result from being called something. They may call you a Christian. That doesn't make you a Christian. By the way, they had candles. Them too. All right, Deb, keep going. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebecca also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God, according to election, might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. Okay. Here's, here's a new concept that we're going to have to deal with tonight, the concept of election. And I'm going to get a slightly ahead of ourselves in the text. Um, but this is, again, this is a good reading to do during uh, Lent. Because, for example, during Holy Week, uh, and nobody comes, so of course <clears> no one hears them, in the pre-sanctified liturgies of, of, of Holy Week morning, you hear Job. And Job has the same answer that I'm getting up to right now. Why did God choose the Israelites? What was That word is election. He chose them as his chosen people. Why? I don't know. What was that? There's, we could posit ideas, and, and John, you're probably on the right track, but we could posit ideas from now until Jesus comes back. The truth is, no one knows. That's why it's election. Election, not selection, election. God chose Israel for whatever purposes God has. We weren't there, we're not God, and he is. I am 58 years old. I entered seminary at 18. I have 40 years of theological reflection in my head. And with all of that study and prayer and thought and Bible reading, I have come to two absolute incontrovertible facts. There is a God and I'm not him. I don't know why God chose Israel. He never told us. If he wanted us to know, he probably would have mentioned it somewhere. But he elected them. They, are his, they were, are his chosen people. And so Paul is raising this idea of election yeah, exactly correct. It just He never gave us a reason. Not because of works, but because of his call. To be elected, you have to be called. God called Israel. I'm not going to put him on the spot here. Yes, I am. Why are you a priest? Why did God call Father Peter to be a priest and not Mark? I don't know. I know two incontrovertible theological facts. There is a God, and I'm not him. I don't know why he chose you to be. He called you and you had the, the good sense to respond. And now here you are, a, a priest of God and leading a flock. Call an election. There are some things that we are just never going to understand. All right? We're back to this whole idea of, of you know, there are other kids. The elder will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. As a younger brother, I always kind of love these verses. In the ancient world, especially the Jewish, and by the way, the Greek world, 
who had preeminence? Was it was it the younger brother? Oh no, no, it was the older brother. In Genesis, the order gets reversed. Why did God choose Jacob? I don't know. There is a God, and I'm not him. So Paul was giving us all these examples of election. And, and in essence, he's saying, stop, stop trying to figure it out. Just accept it. God chose them. Move on. All right, somebody on my right, and that would be Judy. Verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? And your, yours says in unrighteousness. Mine says injustice. Right? Slightly different because... And I, I don't want to keep beating this dead horse, but it's important for us when we think about kind of racial issues. I don't mean black, white, but I mean this Jewish thing. Well, so God chose the Jewish people. Well, what about the Syrians? Doggone it. Don't we count? Is God un un unjust because he chose them and not us? What's the answer? There's a God and it's not us. Keep going. What's his answer? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. There's that idea of election and call. I will have mercy on whom I, I will have mercy. I will have compassion. This is God speaking, obviously, on whom I choose to have compassion. So it depends not upon man's will or exertion, but upon God's mercy. You are called. You are elected. Keep going. For the scripture says to the Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Again, we've got to stop there. About whom is he speaking here? <clears throat> Pharaoh. And who's Pharaoh? So, somebody better say Ewell Brenner. <laughs> he opposed to God. Yes! You know, you sit here and tell me you don't know the Bible, Joyce. You should be teaching this course. Oh, yeah, right. Um, here's Pharaoh who opposed God, who, who's horrible. You know, he's not part of the elected community. He's not called. God used Pharaoh in a mighty way, did he not? He You take Yul Brynner out of the picture, and that movie's 10 minutes long. It was the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Yeah. Yeah, if you're missing the reference here, I'm talking about the Ten Commandments. If you haven't seen it, go see it. Um, he hardens Pharaoh's heart. And he did plague number one. I'm going to let the Israelites go. Then he hardens Pharaoh's heart. Plague number two, leading up to the death of the firstborn. Over, over which God lays the Passover, right? The blood of the Lamb, all leading us, all prefiguring us to Jesus Christ. If you don't see Pharaoh as, as leading us to the path of the cross where the blood of the lamb now saves us from all death. Passover is a prefigurement of, of the death of Jesus. He is the lamb, the, the lamb that is worthy to be slain. Pharaoh, even Pharaoh is part of God's plan. Why? I don't know. And I don't think we're supposed to know because if we were, he would have told us. Keep going. Therefore he has mercy on whom he wills and whom he wills he hardens. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? But indeed, O oh man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? What is God wanting to show his wrath? Stop there for a minute. I just I want to make sure we put a wrap on this. Verse 19, you will then say to me, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? You know, kind of questioning this whole idea of election. I love Paul's answer in verse 20. Parents in the room, what's the final argument when your kids are just asking and they're, they're pushing and they want to, what do you finally just give up and say? Because I said so. Because I said so. I'm the mother. I'm the dad. Yeah, right. This is not a democracy. It's a benevolent dictatorship. I said so. That's it. And you don't need to understand why. I'm the mother. End of story. And I don't know about the Lebanese or the Syrians, but if you have a Greek mother at that point, you just bow out and say, yes, ma'am, and run because the, the Pondophilus are coming. <laughs> For those of you who don't speak Greek, those the slipper. And my mother had a slipper. She had boomerang effect. What? <laughs> She was like she was like Wyatt Earp walking into a room. <laughs> so exactly. Look at verse twenty. You know, all kidding aside, look at verse twenty. 
Who are you, a man, to answer back to God? That's kind of a good question. And I brought up the Job reference earlier. That's, in essence, the answer that Job finds. When Job is questioning, why is this happening? Why, did, why was my family taken away from me? Why did, and, and God's answer was, were you there when I created the world? Who are you to question me? So there, we do reach a point where we just need to say God is God and we are not. So this holiday, the potter having no room for the clay, just, just different ways of saying the same thing. Uh, Judy, pick a few more verses. Verse 22 following. What if God wanted to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. And he says also in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and her beloved who is not beloved. It, okay, by the way, this is basically one huge long sentence. If you're an English teacher, Paul's going to get a D minus. And he's written, it's, it's like this run on sentence. And it, it leads up to this quote from Hosea Those who are not my people, I will call my people. We look backwards at that Hosea prophecy as a prophecy of the Gentiles coming in. The Gentiles were not God's chosen people, the Jewish people were. We're clear on that. But all of a sudden now the Gentiles have been brought in. That was prefigured in Hosea. And her, and, and her who was not beloved, I will call my beloved. <clears throat> Us, the Gentiles. Um, there's a little bit of this tonight. I, I do want to throw this out as you get into Lent and into Holy Week. This uh, Old Testament language of my beloved. And very often uh, the Old Testament prophets use the image when trying to describe Israel's apostasy. They would use images of infidelity in marriage. You've been unfaithful to your husband. And so you need to come back and, and your husband's going to forgive you or your husband's not going to forgive you, whatever. But there's always this issue of, of uh, marriage and weddings and bridegrooms. Hint, hint. Where am I going with this? What do we call the first three nights of Holy Week? What services? The bridegroom services. Because what's the ultimate act of the bridegroom coming back to claim his bride? Jesus dying on the cross. Are we not all guilty to a certain extent of apostasy? It's easy for us, all those bad Israelites, you know. We haven't got to us yet. We will. Our bridegroom is coming back to claim his bride. And we are the bride of Christ. So there's this beloved imagery. The, the Old Testament prophets loved that imagery. A few more verses, Judy. Uh, verse 26. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people. There, there they should be called sons of the living God. Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea. Stop. This is the second critical word you have to get tonight. We dealt with election, not selection, election and, and call. And I'm using those, those two kind of interchangeably. Why did God elect Israel? I don't know. I, it's, if he wanted me to know, he would have whispered in my ear. The second critical uh, uh, issue Paul raises tonight, it's coming right now. I'm going to read it if it's okay, Judy. Though the number of the sons, exactly, Debbie. Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant will be saved. Israel always had the concept of the faithful remnant. And there's numerous Old Testament passages that talk about this whole, remember we just mentioned the bridegroom. Israel's in apostasy. But not, but not all Israel. There's always a faithful remnant. Um, I mean, the most glaring uh, illustration of this would be at the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. You're going to destroy that city. Lord, what if I can find a hundred faithful people? All right, if you can find a hundred, I won't destroy it. Good. Shake on it. Good. <clears throat> God, what if I can only find 50? Okay, if you can find 50 faithful people, I won't destroy it. Got it. Shake on it, deal made, sign. <clears throat> okay, God, what if I can only find 25? You're in. I'll save the city. Uh, sign, contract, spit, shake, everything great. Okay. <clears throat> can you imagine God during this dialogue? Knowing what if, what if there's only 10? What if there's only five? 
What, what if there's only one? Okay. Or two it, or three. Uh, that's to agree. <laughs> on this one here, yeah, if you can find one faith, the faithful remnant. No matter how much apostasy they're going to fall into, Israel will always have that faithful remnant. And this is part two of Paul's argument. We've dealt with election. Now there's this idea that I know the Gentiles are flowing in. And by the way, why are all the Gentiles coming into the church? Who brought them? Paul! He's the one who, I mean, Paul, this quintessential Jewish man, is the one who takes the gospel and explains it to the Greeks and the Romans. So he's the, he's the reason why all these Gentiles are flooding into the church. Um, but at the same time, he says that there's, there's a faithful remnant. God is not abandoning all of Israel. There's a faithful remnant. There are Jewish people in the Roman Christian community. And every community Paul has founded, there's Gentile and Jews there. That's the faithful remnant for him. Only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will, uh, verse 28, for the Lord will execute his sentence upon the earth with rigor and dispatch. As Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us children, we would have fared like Sodom and Gomorrah. The Lord left us. He left us that faithful remnant. Judy, finish it off. Verses 30 to the end. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law. I would hope at this point, we don't have to dig into this one too deep. The Gentiles came in through righteousness. The Jews are still pursuing it through works of the law. We've beat that one into the ground for the last few weeks. Finish it off. For they stumbled at the stumbling stone, as it were written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. All right. Chapter 10. Let's keep moving, because now it gets, gets pretty intense. I want to return to the basic idea that Paul is, is just heartbroken when he sees his Jewish people falling away and not accepting Christ. Nadine, I want you to pick up chapter 10, verse 1, good and loud, so the uh, microphone will pick you up. My heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. All right, let's stop right there. I think that, that one we need to give some discussion to. He, again, is, is trying to make sense of what's happened to the Jewish people. He, he, I love this expression in verse 2. Back up, verse 1. My heart's desire and prayer to God is that they be saved. Anti-Semitism just fascinates me in all of its forms. How, how, rather than hate people, why don't we pray for them to be saved? Anti-anything fascinates me for that matter. I mean, I, I just, it just theologically, it doesn't compute. And, and you know, throughout history, when Christians have, you know, you know, kind of pounded on Jewish people, I always come back to chapter, you know, Romans chapter 10, verse 1. Have we prayed for them to be saved? And that's what Paul is saying here. My heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. And here is this magnificent verse, uh, chapter 10, verse 2. I bear them witness. They have a zeal for God. But what's the problem? They're not, they're not seeing the resurrection. Exactly. And, and again, just tell me what the text says in verse 2. What about that zeal? It's not enlightened. It's just not enlightened. You can be zealous for many things. You can be zealous for, uh, I don't know, well, I mean, it's a, it's a silly joke, but it's, you know, the, the pilot gets on the intercom and says to the people, I got some good news and bad news. The bad news is we're completely lost. And I don't know where we are. The good news is we're making excellent time. Um, you can be zealous, but if it's not enlightened zeal, what's the point? And that's what Paul is saying about the Jewish people. They have this zeal. They have the zeal for all the wrong things. They're sitting around, you know, they're, they're leaders. I'm not talking about the, the average <clears throat> Jewish person. Their leaders are sitting around saying, okay, you know, how many miles can someone walk on the Sabbath day before it becomes work? How many knots can you tie in your sandals on Saturday before it becomes work? And they would spend hours discussing these things. They're, they have zeal, but it's all the wrong things instead of mercy and compassion I, I mean think of some of the miracles that Jesus did for which he was uh, verbally attacked by, by the Jewish leadership he healed a woman on the Sabbath day a woman who had been bent over with infirmity for decades there are six days in which to be healed come on those days I, I, 
we, we read these stories, you know, Father reads them on Sunday, we give sermons on them, and we're sitting here in, in 2023 going, what? Well, we don't understand. They thought they thought they were being religious. You're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. You don't, there are six days on which you can have miracles. There's no miracles on Saturday. It was zeal, but not enlightened zeal. They missed the whole point. He is a Jew who is one inwardly. Circumcise your hearts, not your foreskins. All these verses we've been looking at, is, hopefully this is making sense. All right, Nadine, keep going. Verse three. three. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. All right, I think we've beat this one uh, hopefully carefully enough that you understand. It is not through the law, it is through Jesus Christ that we are saved, and it's only through Jesus Christ that we are saved. Be zealous, but be zealous for Jesus. And by the way, we Orthodox can be just as unenlightened in our zeal. Whether what canons we're quoting or what tradition, we could be just as unenlightened in our zeal. Um, my spiritual father was a bit of a maverick. Uh, he was a, a, a monk from the monastery of New Skeet. And I remember he came to our seminary one day to give a, a talk to the seminarians. And he said, you don't worship God. You worship the things of orthodoxy. You worship you know, your robes and your beards and, and your, your prayer robes and, and all the accoutrements. You worship those. Those things are supposed to lead you to Jesus Christ. He, he, by the way, he was right. We get all excited about these, and there's nothing wrong with being excited about them. There's nothing wrong with them. But if it leads you to Jesus, we can get just as Pharisaic as the Pharisees, as evidenced by all the discussions that we typically have around Great Lent, which are so far divorced from the Lent of John Chrysostom, of, yeah, we're fasting so we can feed the poor and the hungry and take care of widows and orphans and, and, and do these things rather than Oh, I'm fasting. I'm not eating meat. I had 17 plates of pasta, but I'm, you know, I'm fasting. I, uh, Father Leon Contos, blessed memory. Um, he was one of the great. He was one of the giants in the Greek Orthodox Archdiocese. He was at a parishioner's house one time, and he's uh, Rivithia. It's um, like an orzo type dish. Um, and he it was during Lent. And he goes, "Oh, you know, my wife made this this orzo, uh, and it's so delicious. I had four plates." And Father Leon said, "Perhaps you would have done better to have had a small pork chop." <laughs> so, so, he, he, he studied at Oxford so he, he had a he affected an, an English accent but uh, I still remember you would have been better to have a small pork chop um, it's zeal but it's not enlightened so while we sit here reading about the ancient Jewish people take a good hard look in the mirror our zeal needs to be, these things need to lead us to Jesus Christ. If they don't, we have unenlightened zeal. You know what you've just done? You've given them all permission to have small pork chops. I'm okay with that. <laughs> <laughs> Keep going. Moses. Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. The man who does these things shall live by them. But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is, to bring Christ down from above, who will descend into the abyss. That is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is, the word of faith which we preach. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. How do we be saved? Confess Jesus with your lips and believe in your heart. Confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. It's the Lordship of Christ <clears throat> and him crucified and resurrect from, resurrected from the dead. That is our salvation. Jesus is Lord. I want you to think about what that means for you. And I can't answer that question, but you can Remember, the ancient Romans were required to offer a pinch of incense to Caesar, and they would say, Caesar is Lord. So this confession, Jesus is Lord, it's nice. It obviously has deep theological meaning for us. In that room, by the way, who is he writing this letter to? The Romans. Do you think the confession, Jesus is Lord, had some meaning for the Romans? 
and a world where you'd be put to death if you didn't go for your yearly offering of incense and say Caesar is Lord? When, when, when Thomas says, my Lord and my God, this is a huge confession in the ancient Roman world. That's how we have to accept the Lordship of Jesus Christ. He has to be the Lord of our lives. If he's not the Lord of your life, I would ask you, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? We come to church every Sunday, we receive communion, do the sacraments, you get your marriage blessed, you go to confession. If Jesus has not become the Lord of your life, what are you waiting for? Because you don't know when that moment comes. You just don't know when that moment comes. I'm going to take this next section because I just love this one. For man believes with his heart and so is justified. He confesses with his lips and so is saved. He's just kind of restating what he said in verse uh, 9. The scripture says no one who believes in him will be put to shame. Verse 12. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. One of the basic themes of Romans. The same Lord is Lord of all and bestows his riches upon all who call upon him. So far, so good. Here's the beautiful part. Bestows his riches upon all who call upon him. Verse 13. For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But how are men to call upon him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without a preacher? And how can men preach unless they are sent? We're right back to that issue of election. The preachers are sent. They're called. We have to, you know, those of you who have sons in the military, daughters in the military, you salute the rank, not the man. I don't, I'm, you know, I'm speaking somewhat tongue-in-cheek or not. I don't, I don't know who's in your room. I don't care if you like your priest or not. I really don't. Honor and respect him. You salute the rank, not the man. He was called, and he answered the call. Now, your job is to preach. Our job is to honor and respect that. Your job is to preach, to preach Jesus Christ as Lord, Jesus Christ risen from the dead. If you don't preach, how can we hear? If we don't hear, we can't believe. And if we can't believe, how can we be saved? It's, it's all kind of right here. So... We have numerous parishes represented here, St. Catherine, St. Mark, Houston, Texas, Church of Christ, many people listening at home. And by the way, people are listening at home, John, because I get phone calls. <laughs> I haven't got any hate mail yet. I'm hoping I get some. Um, I, I, I'm going to repeat myself. I honestly don't really care if you like your pastor, preacher, priest or not. That's, that's, that's the most irrelevant question of all. You salute the rank, not the men. You honor them because they have responded to the call. If you're a pastor, priest, minister, preacher listening to this, stop getting up on Sundays and, and, and giving the announcements from the pulpit. Preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Preach the lordship of Jesus Christ. Preach him resurrected from the dead. How can we believe in him of whom we have never heard? How can we call upon him, him of whom we have not believed? The preacher does his part, her part. We do our part. And the whole thing kind of works. All right. I'm going to go on a little bit more. And how can men preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. He's quoting from Isaiah, uh, an absolutely beautiful passage. I'm going to keep it going. Actually, I, I, then we'll look on that another time. Verse 16, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from what is heard. And what is heard comes by the preaching of Christ. We're back to that, that. He keeps repeating the basic theme. We have to respond to the, to the message. <clears throat> but we can't respond to the message if we haven't heard it. And we can't hear it unless you preach it. Once he preaches it, then we have to respond to it. But it's, it's the content of what we're preaching. How many times have we said we, we spent all those weeks last year and in, in the fall going through Acts Early in our discussion of Romans, I talk about the Evangelion, the kerygma, the kerygma, the message, the gospel. That's what needs to be preached from our pulpits, the gospel. The lordship of Jesus Christ, him resurrected from the dead, and our need to come into a relationship with that. 
Everything else is commentary. Everything else is commentary. When that happens, the system works. When it doesn't happen, the system breaks down. All right. Um, Nadine, finish off from 18 following. But I say, have they not heard? Yes, indeed. Their sound has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I say, did Israel not know? First Moses said, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. But Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me. But to Israel, he says, all day long I have stretched out my hands to the disobedient and contrary people. So here's God, you know, perfect. We just finished the prodigal son, the father running. to. Here's God with his arms stretched out to his Israelite people, and, and they're still not responding. If there's any question, their voice has gone out into all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. The, the preachers are out there. They're preaching. The prophets and now the apostles. Is anyone listening? All right. All of this leads us to chapter 11. Verse 1 is the question. Mark, what's the question? Just read the text. Don't tell me what you think. Read the text. I say then, have God cast away his people? Stop right there. That's the question. Has God rejected his people? No. no. Exactly. So remember how we started in chapter 9 with this idea of election. And I, I'm not going to repeat all everything we've said for the last, you know, 45 minutes, but... He chose Israel. Why? I don't know. It's not our business to know. If it was our business, he would have told us. He chose them. And everything that we've been saying for the last 45 minutes, blah, 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 blah. Okay. Has God rejected his people? And Paul is going to give us the answer. No. Now Paul gives us the reasons why this has happened. And this is just incredible. Um, Mark, keep going. <clears throat> I'll start it over. I say then, hath God cast away his people? God forbid. For I also am an Israelite, of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of, tribe of Benjamin. Uh, here, you know, here's Paul identifying. By the way, I'm a Jew too. So if he's rejected his Israelite people, he's rejected me. I, you, you hear the angst in him, the anguish. Keep going. God hath not cast away his people, which he foreknew. What ye not, what the scripture saith of Isaiah, how he maketh intercessions to God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed thy prophets, and dig down thine altars, and I am left alone, and they seek my life. Verse 3, this is great. This is Elijah crying out after all the, you know, the, the, the death and murder and whatnot. I alone am left. Faithful remnant. But is it just Elijah? Somebody on my right, pick up in verse 4. Irene, nice and loud. Verse 4? Yep. What is God's reply to him, meaning Elijah? Chapter 11, verse 4. All right, that's right. I'm going to throw it from one Irene to the other. We'll come back. Verse 4. But what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to fall. Even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. All right, let's stop there and make sure we just kind of digest that. <clears throat> Elijah says, I'm all alone. God says, no, you're not. There's 7,000 people who have not bowed the knee to Baal, Baal, however you want to pronounce that. Verse 5 is so key. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. We're back to that concept of election, aren't we? And they've been chosen by grace. For if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would not be grace. If you earn it, it's no longer grace. Why have these certain people been chosen? I have no idea. And it's not my business to know. But it's the faithful remnant. 
Paul uses the Elijah example to point to the historical truth of the faithful remnant. And he's saying to the Roman community, and here it is right in front of you right now. There's a small percentage of the Jewish nation that, that has followed Jesus. So that's argument number one. Edini, keep going. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elected have obtained it, and the rest were blinded. Just as it is written, God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see, and ears that they should not hear, to this very day. And David says, let the table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and bow down their back always. So Paul was doing something here that I have talked about repeatedly. He is trying to show an example of the hardness of heart. And he's trying to, to quote a context. And in the ancient world, when you cited one verse from a psalm or a biblical passage, you were citing everything because everybody knew it because they had it all memorized. And we can't even memorize our own phone numbers anymore. right? They, they, people, this is the way you learn. You, you just memorize pages and chapters and, and you know, whole books of the Bible. Paul is citing Psalm 69, and I want to take the time to look at Psalm 69. So if you've got an Old Testament, keep your finger in Romans chapter 11 and go to Psalm 69. Old Testament, Psalm 69. If you can't find it, I'm going to just give you 10 seconds. Just listen because I'm going to read it. Psalm 69, yep. Got it. Save me, O God, is the way it starts. Okay. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into the deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with my crying and my throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause Mighty are those who would, I know a couple of you are already going, oh, wait a minute, I know what he's talking about. Mighty are those who would destroy me and those who attack me with lies. What I did not steal must I now restore. O God, thou knowest my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from thee. Let not those who hope in thee be put to shame through me. O Lord God of hosts, let not those who seek thee be brought to dishonor through me. O God of Israel, for it is for thy sake that I have borne reproach. That shame has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brethren, an alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for thy house has consumed me. And the insults of those who insult thee have fallen upon me. When I humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. I am the talk of those who sit in the gate and the drunkards make songs about me. But as for me, my prayer is to thee, O Lord, at an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of thy steadfast love, answer me. With thy faithful help, rescue me from sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. Let not the flood sweep over me, or the deep swallow me up, or the pit close its mouth over me. Answer me, O Lord God, for thy steadfast love is good. According to thy abundant mercy, turn to me. Hide not thy face from thy servant, for I am in distress. Make haste to answer me. Draw near to me. Redeem me. Thou knowest my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to thee. Insults have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity. There was none. For comforters, I found none. They gave me poison for food and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. That's exactly correct. Psalms, Jesus on the cross. They gave me, Psalm 69 is a strong messianic psalm. How they heaped lies and insults upon him who just kind of took it. I, I love verse 17. Hide not thy face from thy servant, for I am in distress. Make haste to answer me. Uh, one of the most beautiful services that I used to thoroughly enjoy 
would be the Sunday night vespers going into clean Monday, the start of Lent. Everything's very joyful and you, music and censers and bells and things. And then when we get to that part of the vespers, it's called the evening prokimenon. This is the verse that's chanted. And it's chanted very slowly. Turn not your face away from thy servant, for I am in distress. And while this is being chanted very slowly and very mournfully, all the white cloths come off the altar and the purple cloths come on. The censer changes to the one without bells. It was, just, it was overpowering. And you had this sense that we have now entered something really profound, something very powerful. The Lenten season has now begun. And, and we are now praying that, Lord, don't turn your face away from me. We're in distress. We're, we need to come back to you. So Psalm 69 that, that Paul was quoting here is very much a messianic psalm, Judy. You're exactly correct. So bring it back to the discussion. What is the ultimate example of the Jewish hardening of heart? Their rejection of Jesus Christ on the cross. They're bringing him to Rome to be crucified. So when he throws that verse out there, he's citing the entire passage. His audience would have picked that up, especially the Jewish audience. Or the Greeks wouldn't know. The Greeks wouldn't know the Psalms anyway. But the Jewish audience would have instantly gone, oh, I know what he's talking about. It's this whole thing. It's they gave me vinegar to drink. And he, they would have gotten it in a way that we don't. All right? Judy, keep going. Um, I, what I want you to do is um, pick up in verse 11. I say then, have they stumbled if they should fall? Certainly not. Okay, now in verse 11, Paul finally starts to line up his answer. So what is the purpose of, of the Jewish falling away? Why has God allowed this to happen? Because he's asking as a Jew, Lord, you chose us and now you didn't. And, and it's, our hearts are hardened. What? Paul is kind of doing what he told us not to do. He said, who are you to question God? Paul is questioning God. He's like, I want some answers, doggone it. Well, so this is what Paul's come up with. Verse 12. Actually, starting 11, I'm sorry. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy. Salvation has come to the Gentiles. Answer number one. What has the Jewish falling away done? Provoke them to jealousy. Why? To bring them to the Exactly. It allowed the Gentiles to come in. If all the Jewish nation accepted Jesus Christ as Savior, would we be sitting around this table tonight having Bible study? No. The, the, the church would be just kind of a, a renewal movement in ancient Judaism. In order for us to come in, they had to be stepped aside for a little bit. And, uh, and it took a genius of Paul to, 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 to make that happen. But you take away the Jewish falling away and we're not sitting here. Keep going. Now if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, much more fullness. For I speak to you Gentiles. Hold on, because that verse 12 is important. And, and again, I say this because when I talk about anti-Semitism, you know, let's face it, throughout history, most of the perpetrators of anti-Semitism has been the church. Are you going to, does anyone seriously expect me to believe that when Hitler was exterminating six million Jewish people and during the World War II and the Holocaust, that the Christians in Germany didn't know was going on. I, I mean, you're stretching credulity. Six million people just don't disappear. So, so quite honestly, the church has been some of the worst. And, and, and this is why you need to have Bible study, because you've got to come back to Paul, who says, look at verse 12, if their trespass means riches for the world, meaning the, the growth of the church, if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will the full inclusion mean? If it's a great thing that us crazy Greeks came into the church, how much more beautiful is it to be when the Jews come back? I, why hasn't anybody been asking this question for 2,000 years? Keep going. For I speak to you Gentiles, and as much as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If by all, any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save All right, Paul just gave us a little justification for his own ministry, didn't he? Why did Paul launch his ministry off to the Gentile world? To provoke jealousy. To bring the to bring his Jews with him. So they would right. Um, 
when I was a kid, I'm the fourth of, of four siblings. And if any of my siblings are listening to this, you're partially to blame for my psychosis. Um, they want, you know, we, we were swimming lessons and I was supposed to jump off the edge of the pool and I was terrified, I didn't want to do it. And so what do they do? Now, you can do this, you're brave, you, I'm, I'm crying. No, 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 that, well, they're close. No, no, what they did is they had my sister get up and she jumped in and they're cheering. Yay, Stephanie, way to go, Stephanie. All I had to see was her getting praised. Boing! I was like Greg Louganis. I was swan diving off the side of the pool. Paul early on realized I can preach and preach and preach and preach and preach to the Jewish people and they're not ever going to get it. So you know what? Why don't, why don't I go get these Gentiles and therefore all my Jews are going to go, hey, wait a minute, what about us? That's exactly what happened. That's what he did and that's what happened. All right, keep going. If by any means I provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them, or if their being cast away is reconciling with the world, what will their acceptance be but life of the dead? For the first root, if the first root is holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches were broken off, and you being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree, not boast against the branches. Okay, this is an important kind of verse here for the Gentiles. Because, you know, the Gentiles are kind of thumping their chest going, ain't we special? We got it. The Jewish people didn't. And Paul basically says, easy, Gentiles. Back off on your boasting a little bit. Because you've been grafted onto the tree. That's an unnatural act. If we understood uh, gardening here, this would make a whole lot more sense. You know, you take a branch and you kind of tie it to the tree and graft it. And eventually the branch becomes part of the tree. This is how Paul is explaining the... Um, the addition of the Gentiles to the holiness of, of the faith. And he's basically saying, just, just ease up a little bit because you, you've been grafted on you. This isn't of your own. You haven't really done anything on your own. You've been grafted onto the holiness. Dough. You take a little bit of leaven and it, the whole dough you know, kind, of, kind of goes. So he's, he's treading a thin line here. Keep going. Grace again. Yes, exactly correct. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off that I may be grafted in. Well said. Because of unbelief, they were broken off, and you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. I love this. Mm -hmm. Great warnings to the Gentiles. It is not you that supports the root, but the root that supports you. Verse 19, you will say branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Verse 20, that's true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast only through faith. So do not become proud, but stand in awe. And this is the question I raised earlier to those of us who have grown up in, serve, or currently worship in apostolic Christianity. When we talk about all of the things that we have and we take such pride in them, we take such pride in, in our icons and the candles and the incense and the fathers and the writings and the this and the that. And as my father confessor, the same one who gave that talk at the seminary said, we Orthodox are the greatest footnoters in history. We footnote everybody else's experience of Jesus Christ because we're too afraid to have one of our own. And just like he broke off the branch of the Jewish people, ladies and gentlemen, he can break us off too. The words of Father Lawrence coming back. You worship the things of orthodoxy, not God. <clears throat> they are supposed to lead you to God. We could easily be, don't listen to me, listen to Paul. So do not become proud, I'm in verse 20, but stand in awe. Stand in awe. Finish it off, verse 21. Uh, let's go back to my left. Um, Deborah, you're closest to the microphone. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell severity, but toward you, goodness, if you continue in his goodness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in 
if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, who are natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? He's talking about the Jewish people. Right. He goes, they were pulled off this tree, the, the Jewish tree. We took you Gentiles and grafted them on, and look how beautiful. Don't you think it's going to be easier for them to come back? So he's saying to the obviously you've got some headbutting going on in Rome. The Gentiles and the Jewish Christians are kind of knocking heads. And he is saying, Gentiles, ease up a little bit because they're going to come back. And it's going to be easy for them to be grafted onto the holiness because this was their body in the first place. All right, finish it off. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion that blindness in part has happened to Israel. Here we go again. Now here's kind of these, if you're underlining or taking notes, these are the ones. Why has this hardening of heart come upon the Israelites? Well, the first thing we saw, so the Gentiles could come in, right? Keep going. Um, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. All right. What's our first answer? Why is God temporar temporarily set aside the Jewish people? The Gentiles. the Gentiles. And how many? Don't tell me what you think. Read the text. All of Israel shall be saved. I'm asking about the Gentiles oh. in verse 25. The full, the full number. And what is that full number? I have no, no idea. idea. <laughs> it's fullness. It's just the fullness. And so until that day when all of the Gentiles reach, when the fullness of time is reached, the Jewish people are temporarily set aside. But when the fullness of the number comes, they will come back into the body of Christ. Keep going. The deliverer, deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So he keeps reminding us salvation comes from the Jewish people. Jesus was a Jew coming from the lineage of David. Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irre irrevocable. For as you were once disobedient to God, yet have now obtained mercy through their disobedience, even so, these also have now been disobedient, that through the mercy shown, mercy shown you, they also may obtain mercy. All right. He just keep, keeps kind of hammering the same theme. Their disobedience, their denial of Christ has shown mercy to you, but your mercy is to lead them to mercy. Keep going. For God has committed them all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. And that's been the answer to most questions tonight. His ways are just beyond our understanding. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him, and it shall be repaid to him? For, for of him, and through him, and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. Now, I think we've, we've lined up the arguments. Paul has cleared, clearly said Jesus has temporarily set aside the Jewish peoples that the Gentiles, <coughs> us, could come in so we could sit here tonight and have Bible study. Um, but we need to pray for them for the day when they come back because only when they do will the fullness be reached. So I think we've you know said enough of that. Here we're back to... Um, the textual problems that you have when you do bio, uh, serious scholarly work. If you're at all a literary person, what, what is verse 26? <clears throat> excuse me, 36. That's a conclusion. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. If I was a literary editor, and I'm reading this, <coughs> Without chapter and verse. Remember, chapters and verses were added just a couple hundred years ago. Um, I think Paul ended his letter to the Romans at that point. 
because he, you know, Romans has really been dealing with the Jewish question. We dealt with it in chapters one, two, and three, and four. Then you know, five, six, seven, eight was that explosion of mercy and nothing can separate us from the love of God. And then he returned to the Jewish question: Why did God allow this to happen? Well, he just lied it out for us so the Gentiles could come in. It's temporary, the fullness, blame, and to Him and through Him and Him be all glory for ever, ever. Amen. <sighs> oh, and by the way. That's what I think Paul did. Because what's going to come in the next two or three weeks now in chapters 12, 13, 14, and 15 are just a series of moral exhortations. Well, that was like the end of his thought. <clears throat> yes. It's kind of the end of the, the, the theological piece. Remember, we always said Paul starts with theology, then he goes to morals. So the good news is the heavy theology stuff is done. Um, next two weeks, we're going to be dealing with just nice moral exhortations. And then you get to chapter 16, which is basically say hi to everybody in Rome for me. And he names like 30 people. Oh, say hi to Bill, and say hi to Angela, and say hi to David, and say hi to Ellen, and say hi to Joyce, and don't say, well, don't say hi to John. You know, he, he just kind of say hi to everybody in Rome. And I'm, I'm, I'm not being funny or facetious. Look at chapter 16. It's just, boom, boom, boom. he just names all these people in the Roman community. 12, 13, 14, and 15 are moral exhortations. So the next two weeks, we're going to start looking at practical application. Now that we have understood our role as Gentiles coming and being grafted onto the body of Christ, we understand the temporary setting aside of the Jewish people. Those of us who are Orthodox or Roman Catholic recognize we can't fall on, on well, our, our tradition and our history is so rich. Yeah, good for them. They made it to heaven. You know, my friend Sherry, good for you. You keep kosher at home. Your dishes will go to heaven. You know, it, it, the question that Paul is asking these communities, he's asking us. Good for you that you have all these things. What are you doing with it? What are you doing with this faith of yours? Are you living it? Are you putting it into practice day in and day out? So that's going to be the next two weeks. So we start chapter 12 in moral exhortation next week. It is two minutes to eight. We'll call it a night. All right? Thank you. Amen. It's a night.